They devoted the day's readings to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Has anybody seen Chef's Table on Netflix? Uh, but it meant a lot to me. And like, and like most things on Sunday mornings, I do what I want. No. Uh, no, that is, <laughs> that is a show on Netflix called Chef's Table. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would suggest you do so. It's kind of this beautiful, like, HD uh, documentary-style uh, show about food and about these chefs and about, uh, and particularly about these chefs' lives and about everything that uh, kind of goes into making these beautiful meals. These are all like world-class chefs, some of the best in the world. And it's all about their food, but also about their lives and the way that their lives impact what it is that they cook, what it is that they make. Because food turns out to be something that's incredibly important in our lives, isn't it? It's, it's incredibly important. We gather around food. We uh, we can't barely get together without having some type of food. But it's also, and, and surprisingly enough, we need it to survive, right? We need it to survive. But it's so much more than just survival, isn't it? Food is so much more than just survival. It's so much more than just uh, sustenance. If it was just about sustenance, you know, we would all just eat raw, veg- raw vegetables and drink water and eat unseasoned lean protein, and we would all look amazing, but we would all be slightly unhappy, (laughs) right? This is, uh, food is so much more than just that. Food has this power to lift our spirits and to bring us together. Food is very often the thing that you remember most about your childhood even, isn't it? Uh, How many of you still remember uh, walking into that house, I don't know if it was your grandmother's house or your own house, and you knew that somebody inside was cooking something or baking something that you absolutely loved. For me, it was my grandmother's cinnamon rolls. Uh, she would make them uh, from scratch uh, in the mornings when, we would, when me and my like 50,000 cousins would come to visit. And I was an early riser so I, when I was young, and I would wake up and I would walk down these kind of creaky wooden steps and I would see her uh, pulling these big uh, baking sheets of cinnamon rolls out of the oven and I would kind of get smacked in the face with this aroma of uh, cinnamon and uh, brown sugar and coffee and I just knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was going to be a good day, right? That that was going to be a good day and that I was in the right place right? Food has this power, doesn't it? Food has this effect on us. How many of you have ever sat down with friends at table 
And over a wonderful meal, you've had just tremendous conversation, right? You've had, you've had these full and rich experiences. You've laughed together. Maybe you even cried a little bit as you ate. And oh, you ate well too, right? And at the end of the meal, you leave the place feeling so full in both body and mind and spirit that you walk away going, I think that's what life is all about. I think, I think that is what life is all about right there. Whatever happened there around that table and with those people, I think that's what life is all about. Sometimes a good meal, a celebratory meal with good friends can just kind of carry us away and it can make us forget about all of the problems that we have in our lives. There's this incredible power to eating together, isn't there? There's this incredible power to being gathered around a table with people and breaking bread and enjoying one, one another's company. I think we all know it, don't we? This is why we have big festive meals. And it's no surprise then, given that reality, that in the scriptures, food, and particularly the word we're going to talk about a lot today, feasting, has a very central place in the scriptures. Central to the worship in the scriptures. Central, it it comes to mean, a feast comes to mean all kinds of things kind of Uh, to represent all kinds of things in the scriptures. It becomes this incredibly important thing. Now, it's quite possible that if you're in this place today, you've never heard a sermon on feasting before. Who has heard a sermon like this? Raise your hand. Brian, of course. Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay, good. Uh, Well, you're in luck. Because today we're going to talk about feasting. If you just open the ba- to the back of your Bibles and you look up the word feasting, you will see any number of references to feasting. It's something that's incredibly important with this, within the Scriptures, but it's something we kind of gloss over. Now, traditionally, church people like to eat, but we don't always like to talk about the significance that, you, that is found there in and around the table. The Bible is simply chocked full of these things called feasts and instructions about how to feast. And the feast is used as an analogy for all kinds of different things in the scriptures. But today we want to focus specifically on the spiritual significance of feasting and how uh, the Christian faith is one that embraces feasting as a way of celebrating and worshiping God's goodness of celebrating and worshiping God's goodness. It's one of these beautiful Christian practices that should not lead us to gluttony or to overuse, but to celebration and to worship. Feasting is part of what makes Christianity beautiful. It's part of what makes Christianity and life beautiful. And so today, we're wrapping up this series we're calling Beauty, Infinity, and Wonder, and we are talking about feasting. Is anybody okay with that? Okay, thank you. Next week, we'll talk about, we're going to start a series about what we believe, right? About uh, stodgy doctrines and things of that nature. But this week, we talk about feasting. It's good. It's good. Now, at Grace Community Church, we want to be a people who feast well, who feast well, who celebrate well. Not a people who are, like I said, given to overindulgence, but a people who understand how to eat and how to celebrate and how to fellowship in sincerity and with glad hearts because we serve a God who is described over and over in the scriptures as really, really loving a great party. This is the God that we serve. 
So this morning, what I want to do with you is just kind of open up the scriptures to walk through the Old Testament and the New Testament to talk about the significance of feasting in those two places, and then to draw some, draw some of those threads together to help us understand how to feast well as followers of Jesus, what the, what the Christian vision for a feast looks like, all right? All right, here we go. So the first place we need to start if we're going to look uh, at this idea of feasting within the scriptures is to the Old Testament. It's really where the word feasting gets its meaning. It's where it's, it derives its primary idea. Uh, so and this idea of feasting really kicks off right after God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he institutes to Moses special feasts, or what in the Old Testament is often called the appointed times for eating, apparently, uh, throughout the agricultural year. And these feasts were meant to help the people of Israel celebrate, remember, repent, and give thanks. This, is, this, this was the, pur- the purpose of these feasts, or these appointed times. All the feasts had a kind of Godward momentum to them. They were not strictly about food, but were rather about the God who they believed provided and sustained them, right? Each feast had its own purpose, and there was always very specific preparations that had to be made in advance of the feast. The, the, these feasts were set to the lunar calendar, which, uh, which, meant, which is why Jewish holidays kind of move around our Western calendar in a way that makes very little sense to us. Uh, so a feast, in a way of speaking, these feasts in the Old Testament, in a way of speaking, were how the Hebrew people kept time. It was how they measured time. It was how they marked the passage of time. And when we, from our vantage point, look at the Old Testament, uh, and we look at all the feasts that they had, there's like seven or eight of them, we kind of go, oh, okay, not bad, not a bad way to live. You get a lot of vacation. School gets canceled a lot, right? You, you get to eat, you get to have a lot of parties. The bank's closed. But, you, but what you need to remember is that this was a different time, a different context than the one in which we live today. It, it was very, very different. Because in that day, feasting was not easy. It was not easy. In fact, it would cost you something pretty significant. And this is where things get quite different from our context, don't they? And I think in a culture like ours, one where we sim- we're simply kind of swimming in abundance, right, in overuse, feasting is actually a kind of healthy corrective. Do you know that in America we waste one-third of the food that we produce? One-third of the food that we produce just ends up in a landfill. That's overabundance, right? We don't live in a culture of enough right, in America. We live in a culture of too much. And anybody who's actually tried to clean your house this week understands that, right? We live in a culture of too much. Uh, We are swimming in overabundance. And understanding this reality uh, doesn't actually make us want to, like, walk away from feasting, but I think actually if we embrace a biblical vision or a a biblical picture of feasting will actually help us to maybe, maybe wean ourselves off this culture of too much and lean into something a little bit more significant, a little bit more valuable. Because in, in the biblical times, uh, they understood that a feast was a sacrifice, that it, that it costs something. One bad year of drought could wipe you out, right? One bad harvest and you and your family were toast. 
uh, killing the fattened calf and bringing your best goat cost you something. It really physically cost you something. And so the feast was more special because of that cost, because of, because of what you were sacrificing in order to make this feast happen. It was actually a more valuable thing. The feast required a kind of trust on the part of Israel in the Old Testament. They actually had to trust God that he would continue to provide, trust that they were not solely dependent on their own skills and productivity to provide, but rather that everything they had and everything that they were going to have came from the hand of God. This is what feasts reminded them of. There was joy and there was sacrifice and there was intentionality in feasting. And the Old Testament drew people's hearts as much as they were, they were, they were preparing for feasts by, uh, by killing the fatted calf or by, or by bringing their best, their best produce to the table. Even though they were doing all of these things and making all of these preparations, the feast really drew their eyes heavenward because they knew as they were making that sacrifice that the only way that they were going to be able to have another feast like that is that if God came through on their behalf. This is what a feast represented. And, there was, and it brought with it a kind of joy. And even amidst that sacrifice, very often what, what God asked of them is that they would experience joy in the midst of a feast. Even if, as they put down their last bit of resource in order to have that feast, in order to observe that appointed time, they were still expected to come and do it joyfully, to do it with joy. And so God instituted the feast for that very reason. For that very reason, so that people would not, could, could enjoy and celebrate, but not, not so that they could just overuse and run through stuff, but rather so that they could turn their eyes heavenward and they could see the God who provided these things. It was this beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what, the, that's what feasts were in the Old Testament, and every one of them is different. There was the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of... Uh, the Feast of the Passover. There were all kinds of feasts, and they all had different purposes, and they all celebrated different things, but they were all significant. They were all purposeful, and, they all, and all the people of Israel kind of set their watch by these feasts, knowing that they lived in the rhythms of these feasts, and they, they lived in the rhythms of what God was wanting to do in and through this people. And so we take from the Old Testament, we fast forward into the New Testament, and when we get to the New Testament, we're left with a kind of question. And the question is, where'd my feasts go? Right? Where'd all my feasts go? Because I, I need a feast or two because I don't seem to have any more feasts in the New Testament, right? If, if you're here and you don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about these Jewish feasts and you grew, and you grew up around the Christian faith, you're going, where did all of these opportunities to, to eat go, right? Where did they go? And this was a question that, the, that in the New Testament we actually see, uh, we actually see early Christians wrestling with. How, uh, do they still celebrate these Jewish feasts and festivals? It came up in the New Testament often because after Jesus, Christians stopped ritualistically observing the feasts, right? They stopped re re uh, observing them in a religious way. They still early Christians still participated, but they, they stopped participating in a religious way in the, in the Feast of the Old Testament because, and this is important, they believed that when, when the God of Israel sent his son, Jesus, as the, Jesus was a kind of great culmination of all the nation's feasts. 
that he kind of fulfilled every promise that they were, that they were anticipating in the feast. They, they believed that Jesus had kind of summed it all up and, and accomplished it all in his presence. And now, for those who make up God's kind of multinational people, not just, not, God's people weren't just Jewish anymore, but kind of this multinational people, in Christ we are no longer under any obligation to practice Israel's feasts, just as they were not under any, any obligation to practice Israel's law, right? It's the same type of idea. But this does not mean that feasting went away in the New Testament entirely, or that the, or that the concept became unimportant to God. Uh, Jesus actually transforms feasting and institutes his own meal. Jesus institutes his own, his own feast uh, during the Passover that we call communion. We call communion. And this is what he says, right, when he's instituting, instituting this feast. Whenever, whenever you, right, so what he means there is often, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is something we miss in, mo- in modern uh, expressions of the Christian faith, but something if you read the, if you read the, Old Test- or the New Testament, you'll pick up on. Because uh, in the early church, early Christians took this idea of feasting and put, and, put, and put it together with what Jesus said about communion there, and they didn't just make the communion uh, the communion meal or the communion uh, table, uh, a, little, a little juice and a little wafer. They actually turned it into a whole meal. Early Christians would gather together around a meal and, that they, that, uh, and they would break bread together. And this was, this was the feast that Jesus instituted. And at some point in the service, at some point in the meal, they would actually stop and observe communion. But the, the meal itself was the thing that Jesus had instituted, they believed. We read from our teaching text today in Acts 2, verses 46, that they, uh, continuing daily with one, uh, with one, in one accord in the temple, and uh, with the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Early Christians prioritized this practice of eating together, of breaking bread together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. What a beautiful phrase. And when the church gathered, they would gather around the table, around food. And this, this gathering where they, would, where they would gather together daily at, at table and receive communion, it, it acquired a name. And the name that it got, and you can read about this in the book of Jude, uh, he, he refers it to, it to it this way, is a love feast. They, early Christians started calling their gathering around food a love feast, which is a strange thing to call it, Right? Uh, it was, it's, slight, it, it may, it's a little weird. If we had a big dinner and we called it a love feast, people would go, uh, I might go to McDonald's, <laughs> right? I, I don't know if I want to take part in a love feast, but this is what they called it because it was, about, it was about the community. It was about this commitment that they had to one another in the name of Jesus. It was about their shared fellowship and, and, and trust of one another. It was, it was about koinonia, which is, the, which is the Greek word for fellowship. It was about love. It was about love. And so they called it a love feast. And we read in the New Testament that early Christians did this all the time. They gathered in, in for these love feasts that culminated in the preaching of the word and the, and the reception of communion. And different households would take turns providing for this meal. 
This is, now, this is interesting. In the same way that in the Old Testament, the, the sacrifice that was required at the feast uh, comes into play in the New Testament because different households would begin in the, in the New Testament to pro- providing for this love feast, providing for this meal. And that, and that provision was at great personal cost. It was at great personal cost. One scholar that I read said it, was, it could have amounted to a month's salary a month's salary on the part of the person who was actually providing for this meal. They were giving sacrificially to the community from one's resource in order to celebrate together. And they were doing that, again, in the echoes of the Old Testament, in order to trust God, to trust God, that God would be the one who would provide for their needs, that, that, they, wouldn't, that they weren't solely responsible for their own provision, and that they, weren't, uh, they didn't have to be scared, they didn't have to have a kind of scarcity mentality, but rather they could give to the community out of love and know, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God would provide for them. Not in some like kind of God-scattering manna over their front yard kind of way, which would be great, but a little weird, Right? but that God would provide for them because they were a part of a community where other people were sacrificing in the same way. Does this make sense? They were a part of this community of fellowship and love. And the, and the personal sacrifice that people were making in order to make these love feasts happen is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gets so mad at the church and why he says some of you are taking improperly. Right before the passage that pastors often read before we receive communion, Paul says this to the church in 1 Corinthians, So then, when you come together, is it not the Lord's supper you eat? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own privileged suppers, right? You're eating, more, you're eating ahead of everybody else, and you're, you're eating all the food, and you're not leaving any for anybody else, is what Paul's saying. And as a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk, Right? Don't, have, uh, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, do you, de- uh, or you, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Humi- humiliating those who brought this food, right? That you're, you're offending your brother by, by eating his food and not, and not participating in the love feast as you should. And so Paul's ticked off, right? Why shall, what shall I say to you, he says? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul's ticked. Paul's ticked because people are taking improperly because they're abusing the generosity of their brother or sister and they're, and they're eating too much and they're getting drunk. And Paul, Paul's super ticked off about this. This is what, he means, this is what it means to receive, to receive improperly, right? To be unreconciled as a community at this love feast and to not, to not represent in the way that you eat together the beauty and the goodness of God. And this meal, because this meal was meant to display the love of the church, it was meant to put on display the type of self-sacrificial love that Christians had for one another. And just because, and on, uh, on some occasions, people would try to fill their own bellies and leave others hungry. And Paul thought, this is not what it's all about. Because the love feast, this, this, uh, this feast that is instituted by, was instituted by Jesus is all about community. And it's all about Jesus. And Jesus was all about others, right? It was always others-focused. You know, early Christians understood feasting, and they practiced it. Not just as a religious way of observing some rule, but in a way that displayed their love and their unity. So, what does the idea of feasting have to do with us, right? 
What does the idea of feasting have to do with us? Why is feasting important today, and how do I do it? Right? Because, you know, Taco Bell's great. You know, it's, I can go to the grocery store and get whatever I need. Very, very rarely do we, uh, some people, there are people, we can't forget, there are people in our culture who struggle finding uh, money to eat. But most of us, most of us have more than we need. So why, why is feasting important and, and why should we embrace it today? I think John Ortberg, the pastor, has a really great uh, quote about this. He says in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, people who want to pursue joy especially need to practice the discipline of celebration. Times of feasting in the Old Testament were transforming experiences, just as times of uh, meditating or fasting were. Celebration generally involves uh, activities that bring pleasure, gathering with people we love, eating and drinking, singing and dancing. Uh, spiritual celebration uh, means uh, doing them while reflecting on the wonderful God that has given us such wonderful gifts. This is what feasting is all about, and this is why we need it. And in a culture of abundance, where we're just kind of awash in everything we need, taking time to prepare, to think, to make space for people, to draw our eyes heavenward, and to eat together, and to, and to party, is something we desperately, desperately need we live in a culture of too much. We live in a culture of too much. And feasting might be a healthy corrective to that. Christians ought to be people who know how to celebrate, to be filled with love and with joy, shouldn't we? We ought to be people who know how to make others feel welcome, shouldn't we? We, are, we ought to be people who, who know how to enjoy the life that God has given to us. We, we ought not be people who are just shut out in our homes, keeping our resource to ourselves, just kind of trying to get by. This is, not, this is not the God we serve. This is not the beautiful God we serve. But rather, feasting is an opportunity to put on display the type of character that we believe flows from the hand of God. And so this morning, I just want to finish, as we finish, I just want to talk about a few ways uh, that tips for feasting. How do we feast together, right? It sounds strange, but how do we actually do it? How do we, how do we feast together? And so the first thing I would say is cultivate a generous heart. Cultivate a generous heart. Tight-fisted people uh, are not very good at celebrating, right? Tight-fisted people are not very good at celebrating. Loop, learn to open your hands to generosity, to cultivate generosity in your own heart. Get used to people coming over to your house. Get used to people using maybe a little bit more than you expected them to use. I had, I had this friend growing up in high school, and every time he would come over to my house, he would open my fridge. And I, was never, and I never liked it very much, right? But, I, but it became a kind of thing that brought comfort to me because I knew he felt at home, Right? I knew he felt at home, and he had plenty of food at home, too. He was just eating mine, but, uh, but I knew he felt at home, and I, I heard one pastor say, who has, um, who has fr fridge privileges in your house? Do you, do you know and love anybody in your life, and I'm not just talking about family who has fridge privileges in your house, so when they come over to your house, they're able to open the fridge and go, can I have that turkey? And you go, absolutely, right? Cultivate a heart of generosity, 
if you don't have a heart of generosity, you'll never be able to feast because one of the primary, uh, one of the primary motivations of feasting together is to give of your resource and to find joy in other people's use of that resource. Does this make sense? Until we embrace that, we'll never be a, we'll never be a people who feast well. So that's one. Number two, set a date and invite people over. Here's number two. This is very practical. Set a date and invite people to your home, right? Get, get some bodies in your house. This is how we feast. This is self-explanatory, right? But it still needs to be said. If you don't plan for it, it will never happen. If you, a party has to be planned, surprisingly enough. You have to put some thought into it. And the next time you, 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 you plan a shindig, ask somebody to come, right? Ask them to come. And if somebody asks you to come to the, your, the, their house, here's another thing, and this is hard in our culture. You need to go, right? You need to go. I don't care what's on television. I don't care if you're tired, right? It's a party, and we need people to have a party. So go, have a party, all right? Just a, just a word to the wise. It's not work, it's fun. Because life is a gift, and we need to celebrate it, don't we? Because life is a gift, and we need to celebrate it. And what, however busy you are, and however much me time you need, you need to go. Okay, that's just, I'm slightly introverted too. Don't think I'm an extrovert up here saying this. You, you need to go, anyways. So that's number two. Number, number three, make preparations. A feast is different than just dinner because we're thinking intentionally about how we prepare for it, about how we prepare to host people in our space, right? About how we prepare uh, to, uh, to engage people in what we're doing that particular day or evening or morning or whenever you choose to feast, right? It, but it, because in these, this preparation means more than just preparing the food. Preparing the food is part of it. Uh, one author, David Mathis, says it this way. Good preparation for a good feast typically, typically begins the day before the feast, not only in our planning, but in our pattern of eating. When our normal day, uh, daily consumption is characterized by sufficient restraint, then feasting is something we can rise to on special occasions by faith and in good conscience, rather than being the baseline for everyday eating, right? Feasting is not the baseline for everyday eating. If you've, if you've so overindulged leading up to a feast that you feel the need to count calories at the feast, something is not right, right? Daily restraint both keeps our stomachs primed for times of fasting so we're not miserably famished and makes possible a kind of special indulgence on feast days. Feasting goes hand in hand with fasting. Feasting goes hand in hand with temperance. Feasting goes hand in hand with being wise in the way we consume throughout our daily lives, throughout the week. Because, you know, if you have a, two Thanksgiving dinners before the ab actual Thanksgiving dinner, then the Thanksgiving dinner doesn't have all that much significance, does it? Right? The Thanksgiving dinner is, is significant. It's important because, it's, because it, there's preparations have been made and you've limited yourself uh, regularly. Uh, there, are, there are these natural rhythms, and we read this in the Old Testament. In, uh, just as there are feast days in the Old Testament, there are fast days in the Old Testament. And there, there are these ways of building into our lives uh, both, both an, uh, an acknowledgement of our dependence on God in the feast and in the fast. 
And so in the Christian life, we're not people of overindulgence, but we're people who make preparations for proper feasts. We're people who know how to party and also how to live well, right? To not always be about the feast, but also to be about our own personal health, right? And the health of our community. So make preparation. And this make preparation can go into all kinds of ways. Think about your guests. Think about the people you're going to have over. Think about the, think about the feast you're going to go to and what type of guest you want to be at that feast. Think about the type of energy you want to bring into the room. Think about, think about the type of spirit you want to bring into that place. Think about the spirit you want to cultivate when people come over to your house, right? Make preparation so that when we party together, when we feast together, this, uh, people feel warmly welcomed and received. They feel, they, feel, uh, they feel at ease. They feel loved. And this is a spiritual gift, I know. Some people are very good at it. I've been over to Marlis's house. But the reality is, the reality is, Feasting has this be- is this beautiful rhythm that it must be prepared for, right? It must be prepared for, and, and we are called to do it. So that's number two, make, or number three, make preparations. Number four, and this is the most important part, make Jesus the center of our gathering. Make Jesus the center of our gathering. Idle feasting is not what we're going for. Christians are not Epicureans or Epicureans. Our tagline is not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not our tagline. Our tagline is eat, drink, and be merry because he lives, right? This is, this, is, this is the tagline for Christians. And there is no better reason to throw a party in all the world than because Jesus lives. There really isn't. This is what Easter is supposed to be in the Christian, uh, in the Christian calendar. Not just an opportunity to put on pastels, but an opportunity to party. And so... With every feast, every feast, every opportunity, every gathering where we come together to feast, what we should be doing is looking uh, what, uh, or creating what God, what one author called a, a God word word, right? There should be some mention, some, some notation of the reason for the gathering, whatever it is. Some, some uh, whether if it's, if it's Thanksgiving it should be kind of universal gratitude to God. If it's Christmas, it should be about the celebration of God's Son. If it's a birthday, it should be thanking God for someone's life. Whatever the feast is about, whatever the celebration is about, it should, there should be a Godward word involved in it. There should be something that lifts our sights above the thing that is actually on our plate and lifts our sights to the one who allowed us to have that thing on our plate. There should be a Godward word in our feasts. You know... Uh, and that helps us gather around the person of Jesus. It helps our gatherings to be more than just about us. It helps, it helps the, the one who prepared the food to, to not be totally concerned that, that the thing they cooked isn't perfect or at the perfect temperature all the time, right? Because it's not about if the food is at the perfect temperature. Yes, you've made preparations, and less, yes, you've been intentional, but it's not about that. It's about, it's about the God who's brought us together and, and, and continues to gather us together in love and longs for us to be a part of his kingdom and his, and his plan and his work in the world. It's not about the thing itself. It's not about the thing itself. I think we've all been over, we've all been to one of those uh, family gatherings where everybody works very, very hard to make sure that everything is just right. And if one thing is not right, then the whole thing is not right. This is not a feast. This is not a feast. 
A feast is one where, where, we, where we embrace the reality of our world, we embrace the brokenness of our stoves, and yet we feast nonetheless, right? This is what a feast is. So, there should be a Godward word. Now, this doesn't mean we need to hear a sermon, right? This doesn't mean that you need to uh, get out the Bible and give a 15-minute give a message. It should probably be short, but it should be there. A Godward word should be there. Maybe you share a, sh- a short scripture reading. Maybe, maybe you share a poem, but you do something to help people focus, right, on, on something other than just uh, the, the fact that they're in a place. But no matter what we do, Jesus should be the center. Jesus should be the center of these feasts. Now, what, now there's a Godward word very often, and I think there should also be a kind of prayer. There's, there should always be a prayer. Many of us pray before we eat at dinner, right, or at lunch, or we, we, have, we have dinner prayers or meal prayers where we thank God before we consume. Uh, at a feast, the prayer is all the more important because it reminds us again and again that we are, we are blessing the one who provided for our, for our food. We are blessing the one who provided. That Christ is at the center, that it's not just barbecue, it's not just tacos, that it is Christ who is at the center of our gathering. And with Jesus... And then with Jesus at the center, the feast functions not just as a feast for our bodies, but a feast also for our souls. And this is what we want from a Christian feast. Not, this is what we want. Not just that uh, we would walk away uh, full in, in body, but that we, would walk, that we would walk away full in spirit. That we, would, we, that we would walk away full in mind. That we would, that we would leave that place full of God and full of the goodness that he longs for us to live in this life. That's what it means to feast in the New Testament. And so the the way we're closing today is pretty straightforward. How can you feast this summer? The summer is a beautiful time to do this because we all have a lot of extra time, don't we? Uh, None of us really have extra time, but we'll make it, right? The summer is an opportunity for us to feast, for us to invite our friends over to our house, for us to throw a party, right? For us to involve God in our lives in some beautiful way with other people. For us to make a sacrifice on behalf of other people and for us to feast. And so my encouragement for you today is this summer to feast. To feast, to involve other people in your life, to, uh, to, have, uh, to invite people over to your house, to have a God word word in the midst of it all. And to, and to leave that place and to enable people to leave that place full, full, not just not just of roast chicken, but of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask that we would be a a celebratory people, of people who know how to feast. We pray that as we go from this place today, you would put on our hearts an opportunity, a date, a time where we could throw a good party and where we could invite some people over and it could be fun and it could be about you. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.